Bet365 sponsors our podcast and they feature over 300,000 sporting events on their betting app. It's got everything you need to bet on sport. Bet365 are offering a wide range of markets including first, last or anytime goal scorers. With over 45 million members, it's the world's favourite online betting company. With the Bet365 Bet Builder, you can combine match results, players to score, number of goals and more to create your own personalised bet. And if you can't watch the games live with Bet365's Match Live feature, you can follow every moment through live graphics and text. Bet365 is the world's favourite online sport betting company. The app can be downloaded from the Google Play and Apple App Store. Over 18s only, please gamble responsibly. Hello and welcome to the TIFO Football Podcast. I'm Joe Devine and I'm joined now by Seb Stafford-Bloor. Hello Joe. And Alex Stewart. Morning Joe. Morning gang. Okay, on today's podcast we are talking about Liverpool-Arsenal. Uh, I have a few specific tactical questions to ask Alex Stewart, so I'm very excited to do that. Uh, Manchester City's defence is a problem, and Seb wants us to isolate the source of that problem. So we get around to talking about that too. Uh, we did try to do a few other things, but I think we're probably going to run out of time, because we always do. So I won't mention them in the case that that does happen. But you'll never have to compromise with The Athletic. Uh, the Athletic, of course, is the the world's best place to find uh, football writing online. That doesn't that sentence doesn't make sense, but it has a lot of positive words in it. Uh, do go there, theathletic.com forward slash tifo. You can download the app. You can enjoy the the, the fine array uh, of of writing on offer. We have dedicated Premier League journalists. We have some fantastic generalist writers, including people like Ollie Kay, who I know Seb has a man crush on. So visit theathletic.com forward slash TiVo, and there you will find a good deal to pick up. Uh, I don't know what it is. Anyway, thanks so much for downloading today's podcast. We're excited to talk about football again, twice a week, by the way. We release on uh, Tuesdays and on Thursdays. So uh, do subscribe to us in all of the normal places wherever you find your podcasts uh, of course we release on youtube as well so you can watch them there if you would prefer um and one final plug before we get started last week we released our uh, first episode of a new sort of sporadic series don't know how many of them we'll be releasing with what regularity but it's called state of the club and uh, it's an hour-long episode uh, focused on arsenal football club where we investigate their tactics their finances we talk about the structure of the club the recruitment the executive level we go back and visit old Highbury with Amy Lawrence and see what's become of it. It's really fun uh, and involves, obviously, Amy, David Ornstein, Adam Leventhal, uh, James McNicholas, and other people, including Matt Slater. So uh, please go and watch that. The reception so far has been lovely, but if you haven't seen it, do check it out. It's a, it's a bit of an evening watch. Uh, so there you go. But for now, I will leave you in the, uh, the warm hands and the cool embrace of Seb and Alex and I. Let's just begin with Arsenal uh, and Liverpool, because this, this was an interesting game. This, this was, caught, of course, the Monday night game. 3-1 was the score to Liverpool. Probably no real surprises there. Perhaps some surprises with, uh, with the way that the game played out. I, I think 3-1, it's not particularly flattering of Liverpool, but it's also a little damning of, of Arsenal. It's one of those sort of odd games where I think there are multiple takes that, that we could find here. Um, I would like to begin with Arsenal um, 
because you know I think in fact we were chatting to producer Adonis who is an Arsenal fan just before the podcast recorded and he he mentioned the idea that uh, it's okay now under Arteta for Arsenal to go to uh, to uh, to Liverpool and get battered three one and everyone still feels fine because actually you know do you know what the game was the game was pretty good wasn't it said the performance uh, from Arsenal was okay. I think it was, Joe. I mean, Adonis is right. There are there were moments in that game where you just you could see very clearly what Arsenal were trying to do, and I think that kind of the positivity is partly to do with Arteta and his sort of the cult of personality that's arrived at Arsenal, um, and you know the willingness of people to buy into his ideas, but also this sense that you can that Arsenal can go to Highbury. I uh, go sorry, go to Anfield even. Um, we went to Highbury for State of the Club. See, that was quite a nice little recovery and further plug for the for the uh, State of the Club episode. It would have been if you hadn't explained what you'd done, but yeah, go on. No, but I feel like it, to make it work, to, to, to make myself seem less foolish, <laughs> perhaps more foolish, yeah. yeah. Anyway, to go to Anfield, there's there's two ways of losing Anfield, really, aren't there? There's, there's the go there, get beaten. And I felt like, yes, Arsenal lost the game, but they also went and showed a kind of... Um, showed that they're working as to what they might become in the future. There are a clearer set of ideas on the pitch. Most interestingly, and actually it's something you text me during the game, Joe, is that Danny Ceballos played really well. And yeah. over the last few years, one of the big problems Arsenal have had at, at, uh, at Anfield, other than conceding goals, is the lack of definition in their midfield. Like it's almost been, you kind of, you forget who played those midfield positions, don't you, after the game? Because yeah. they're, they're such a, they, they've been so inconsequential in relation to the overall overall match. Um, and that wasn't the case. Like if you, I know it's one of those sort of ifs and buts that you can apply after any game of football. But if Arsenal were a little bit economic with the chances, the big one being Lacazette, all of a sudden, you know, everything looks a little less theoretical and more real. Um, and it'd be hugely encouraging if I was an Arsenal fan to, to see that. And I think people have been very harsh on Liverpool. It's, it's almost been, and Sky did this a little bit after the game, it's almost been, oh, Liverpool a bit sloppy. They're still in kind of celebration mode from, from last season. I thought Liverpool played actually very well. Um, yeah, totally. And it was probably their best performance since the, the restart, uh, since the, um, the, the new season began. Um, and Arsenal competed. And I think that's the really important word. Yeah, I agree with you. I'd take that slightly further as well from Liverpool's perspective. I mean, I thought they were terrifyingly good. And I know that didn't sort of result in um, in the number of goals that perhaps that, that team performance deserved. But we mentioned this a little bit when we saw uh, the, the, the game with uh, Chelsea the other day. The, re- the reality is that uh, Liverpool are just the best team in the league. Right? And you can you can see, I find what when you watch them, particularly in a game like this against Arsenal, and, and particularly in a game where they're, where they're being slightly challenged, where it's not easy for them, they look like they have three more players on the pitch. They just look... I don't know whether it's true. I'm sure it's not true, but they look significantly fitter. They look like they make the right decision way uh, you know, more of the time than the, op- than the opposition team. They always look like there's a, an opportunity to get through to goal. They can squeeze through any kind of... Pr- I mean, they're just... They're just unbelievably good. <laughs> uh, and it's kind of... Yeah, it's kind of frightening to watch in, in a way. The jump from... Liverpool of, I don't know, two, three seasons ago to this is just absolutely incredible. Um, but I, I would like to talk about um, Ceballos a little bit because he came on for Xhaka in the in the second half and he immediately he immediately made a difference. I mean, the, the most obvious thing is, um, I don't know if you guys remember it, but that lovely through ball to Lacazette, uh, which I believe was the kind of Lacazette's sort of second throw on goal chance, the first bit having been called offside. 
and he he scuppered it and it's the one that he you know had his shirt over his face for when he when he went off the pitch as a substitute but that through ball was delightful um but also he just immediately helped Arsenal play out of the press in a way that Xhaka seemed unable to do perhaps because you know the idea of being exceptionally tight and skillful with the ball is is not his you know his his number one skill set but he also came on with a kind of weird determination and i've not seen him play like that before admittedly i haven't watched lots of sabias but you know i've i've seen him in a few arsenal games and I, he's never made a huge impression on me beyond his sort of obvious skill level and his his nice array of passing but in this performance you know probably by virtue of the fact that liverpool was so dominant in the first half and you know almost thinking in this kind of environment what is there to lose really we're at anfield we're playing the champions they're clearly a better team he came on and he just looked kind of angry <laughs> he, 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 there was a few times where he broke the press by just running through three liverpool players and i think arsenal's uh, midfield and defense by this point in the game were so shell-shocked by the constant uh, you know the constant blockade and the constant bombing of uh, of liverpool forwards that they'd sort of forgotten that you could dribble through. They, they weren't playing with any confidence. And when he came on, he just completely changed that. And for a good 10, 15 minutes, changed the game a little bit. And I think that, you know, that period really was why we all leave it thinking, actually, Arsenal played pretty well. Because if the first half had repeated in the second half, we wouldn't be saying the same thing at all. Um, I don't know what you think about that, uh, Alex. The issue that, that Arsenal have when they have Xhaka and, and El Nenny as their pivot is there isn't a great deal of go forward. And this is partly because Elneny's job really is to shuttle and shield and pressure and dispossess, which he does effectively, and that's probably why he stayed on. Xhaka, his ability to pass is really predicated uh, a little bit on David Luiz, uh, a bit, little bit like David Luiz, sorry, on having the space and the time to look up and pick that pass. This is why he very often drifts backwards into the kind of quite deep left half space around where the, the left back or the left wing back would ordinarily be. That's to buy himself the time to be able to shuttle the ball forwards. And Ceballos doesn't need that. He's he's better at taking the ball under pressure. He's better at taking the ball um, in a congested area and, and either keeping possession or... or positioning his body in such a way as to be able to move it forwards and and although Sabas was only on the pitch for half an hour uh, you know he managed one key pass and, and two passes um, into the final third which compared to the other Arsenal players the only players that got the ball forwards more were Tierney and Luis who were on the pitch obviously for the full 90 minutes and were passing kind of lower percentage forward passes it's it's interesting that Arsenal 29% of Arsenal's attempted passes were over 25 yards uh, and 23.5% of, of their completed passes were over 25 yards. So they were they were trying to play it long a lot and, and I think Ceballos gives them the option to not play such low percentage passes, to take the ball under pressure and try and work it forwards a little bit better. Um, but I'm assuming that Arteta started the way he did because he wanted the additional solidity rather than the ability to play through the lines. No, I, th I think that's true. Thinking back to it also, that solidity did work. I mean, the goals that were conceded, you know, you could see where the mistakes came from in Arsenal's defending. So I think structurally speaking, or tactically speaking, it did make sense to set up that way. I just, you mentioned uh, Kieran Tierney. I just wanted to say, I think one of my favourite parts of the game, I don't know if anybody else noticed this, was... Um, the ball, I mean, Arsenal have been passing the ball along their back four line for a good 60 seconds by this point, which is not unusual of the first half. Kieran Tierney finally receives the ball in some space to his left. 
looks to play a pass forward and realises Maitland-Niles is sort of tucked inside um, in central midfield and it is not currently an option. And off, screen, off camera, so I couldn't really see what Aubameyang was doing. I assume it was Aubameyang because it was in the left forward position. Uh, he obviously wasn't available and Tierney looks up to him and screams at him like, tuck in, get in, get in, and starts like pulling his hands and then turns back and passes it back into his uh, centre-backs again. But I just thought Kieran Tierney, a fairly new player to Arsenal, uh, shouting at their highest paid player. I really like to see that. That's sort of suggestive of uh, of quite a nice uh, team chemistry, isn't it? Like, the, 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 you know, the amount of money that somebody earns or the number of goals they score doesn't necessarily place them... Uh, above being shouted at by a new left back in uh, in a hierarchy, don't you think, Seb? I do. Um, although it's kind of a nice little segue into shouting things that you didn't enjoy last night, because we had a bit of a conversation <laughs> about that, and you also took some Twitter grief um, for uh, the cardinal sim of expressing an opinion. Do you want to walk yes. us through that controversy? Well, do you know what? I sort of immediately regretted it. Uh, we were having a conversation. It was the second half. Um, it was, I don't know, 65 minutes in, maybe a little later. Uh, and it was uh, Pepe won his second corner for Arsenal, which was a total tragedy. And, uh, you know, he hit the first man again and it was, you know, it was all awful and whatever. But Van Dijk obviously felt that uh, that decision was uh, inaccurate. Uh, but he turned to the referee, sort of started marching towards him and kind of, he, he didn't scream, he bellowed. He, he bellowed with like a, Total authority, I think, and I, I was thinking about this last night, um, because Van Dyke's a very tall and big man, right? As as am I, and uh, unfortunately, the reality is that that I expect Seb, if you and I were to do a social experiment, if you are kind of you know aging, bold, kind of you know sort of weak male, <laughs> which is kind of kind of kind of what I am, I'll be honest. If, with you know, you. <laughs> like if you with your sort of relative I think that's in what authority, he meant. Uh, yeah. <laughs> If you, you know, like with your kind of wimpiness and whatever, like if you tried to shout at someone, they'd probably think like, who, what is there a mosquito in the room? What's happening? Is that I can hear something, but I'm not sure what it is. Is someone if tickling I started, him uh, maybe? Or, someone yeah. tickling him? Yeah. If, I, yeah. if I started shouting at someone, it's quite threatening because I'm big. You know, it's the same reason that I haven't been mugged uh, and have lived in London for 10 years. I mean, obviously there's random chance, needle in a haystack gang. We all love it, hiding, but... I, I've had moments late at night where I've thought, if I if I didn't look so threatening, which is a total lie, by the way, I'm a complete pushover, but if I didn't look quite so difficult, then I think I would have been in trouble more often. And I think about that. I, I, I treat people differently as a result of that, as I imagine Van Dyke as a tall, big man also does. It's unfair for me to criticise him specifically uh, for, for doing what he did, but he, he bellowed at the referee. He basically just shouted, no with total authority, like you talk to a dog that's done something bad. You know, you come home, the dog is sniffing in the bin, it's about to rip the black bag, and the food's going to go everywhere, and you go, no, no. And you think you'd never talk to a human like that. But he did. I get it. He was angry, he was upset, he thought the decision was inaccurate. I've got no issue with players complaining, players getting angry at referees, but there was something about the tone in which he did it that it just left me cold. And I'll, to be honest, I didn't tweet about it until the game had finished. Like a good 20, 30 minutes later, I didn't say anything about it. And I was still thinking about it because of the sort of impact it had on me. I know, I'm I'm a snowflake, right? Anyway, you know, lots of people sort of echoed the same kind of view. Uh, but very quickly, <laughs> there was a lot... <laughs> Oh, there was a lot of people who, um, you know, there was uh, basically I was met by tribalism is, is, is what happened. And there were a lot of, um, you know, whatabouts and, you know, 
uh, Sabios was shouting to, which he was. I, you know, I don't like that either. There was just something specific that that left uh, left me uh, left me cold, Seb. I I have a theory on this because the, the one of the people you're referring to, um, despite looking like um, Navigante from Narcos, um, had the usual kind of um, you know. Um, signs of fundamentalism in his uh, twitter profile he's a you know he's a fan he's a you know he's a, a liverpool supporter and it's kind of when you say something like you did um to a certain person you're kind of um you're you're attacking the purity of their football team which is a really interesting dynamic because i think most of us um when you see something like that, it's not unusual. And some of the people that said, you know, other players do it too, they're quite right to point that out because it happens all the time. Sure. And I think, I think what you were commenting on um, was the dynamic of players screaming in the, the face of officials. Um, it was also it was, it was the tone. It was the way in which you. I'm not totally against screaming in the face of officials. I think, it, you, but when you do it, you just have to make sure that it's not like it doesn't go beyond this level of threatening. I think what I find interesting about it is, um, and I, I too dislike that, but I, I find the kind of the the social response quite intriguing because it's as if when you when there's a win, when there's a victory, it's no longer enough just to um, just to say we won through one, got our three points, performed very well, um, lots of encouraging performances from um, you know the right parts of the team, you know fullbacks were excellent, etc. There has to be this kind of moral victory too, whereby. Yeah. Um, you have to have bested the other team in all sorts of other ways. So you beat them at the foot. You beat them at football. Um, you beat them on the pitch, but also you're kind of better in inverted commas as well. I've, I think this is what tends to happen with a, a social media controversy um, with a small c is that um, people tend to kind of um, to say, "Oh, this kind of behaviour was always there," and you know, it, it's really things like Twitter which which highlight it and which give the platform to to people that behave in that way. I don't think that's necessarily true. I think it's a sort of a modern thing, this kind of one-upmanship that, that comes with um, with fandom now. It's really weird. It is weird. Uh, for Liverpool supporters listening, we're not really talking about the team. They're too good to bother even talking about. Let's, you know, we'll, we'll find another game to chat. I want to talk about Arsenal because um, uh, I had some specific thoughts last night. I, this happens to me sometimes, Seb. I don't know if this happens to you, but I watch the football and I think, I wonder what Alex would say about that. Uh, and the first thing was Jamie Carragher <laughs> described Arsenal's left back thing as a problem. Now, by the left back thing, I mean uh, Maitland Niles sort of tucking inside as a wing back, but also as a kind of central midfielder. Kieran Tierney playing as a as a centre back on the left hand side of a three and and overlapping. I guess I kind of get it, uh, but I not really. It didn't really seem to work last night, Alex. Uh, and I I would just be really curious if you could give me a kind of rundown of the things that it's supposed to do to help and be good. Hey, Seb, did you know that Harry's sponsors the TIFO Football Podcast? I do now. And Alex, did you know that as a listener of ours, you can start shaving with Harry's today by claiming your trial set for £3.95. pence. I have a beard, though. Yeah. Support our podcast and get your set delivered to you, including a razor handle, five-blade cartridge, foaming shave gel, and a travel blade cover, simply by going to harrys.com forward slash TIFO right now. That's harrys.com forward slash TIFO. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com 
slash courtside to learn more. Yeah, so the the main reason it's there is because it helps bulk out the midfield um, with uh, Maitland-Niles tucking inside, making more of a midfield three that allows uh, Arsenal to hopefully get some numerical superiority in that part of the pitch. Tierney has played as a left back and therefore has the ability to push forwards uh, to overlap and cross. So what Arteta appears to be thinking is that he's not sacrificing the two things that come from the modern fullback, which is the the thrust forwards and the ability to occupy the opposition fullback, um, but he's doing it in such a way as to also strengthen the inside uh, with Maitland-Niles and Maitland-Niles' ability to push forwards to make little runs that distract other players and everything should work well. And to be fair, this is the first game where it hasn't worked that well. Um, I think the reason for that is is about, uh, well, there's two reasons. Firstly, it's, it's partly to do with uh, what Aubameyang was doing in terms of his pressing by and large. Um, so Aubameyang was clearly targeting Joe Gomez. Uh, one of the reasons for this is that Gomez steps forwards quite a lot. Uh, he likes to bring the ball forwards, but he also leaves space in behind. And so by pressing him with a player of Aubameyang's pace, Arsenal, I think, were trying to gamble on the fact that either Gomez would, would make a mistake or would leave too much space in behind, whereby if Arsenal were then able to dispossess Liverpool, uh, Aubameyang would have a, a free run in behind Gomez. So Aubameyang pressed quite narrowly. What that did was it meant that Maitland-Niles had a huge amount of space on the right-hand side, oh, sorry, on the left-hand side to cover. Uh, and Alexander-Arnold very frequently was in quite a lot of space because Maitland-Niles was thinking, well, if I push up, then that exposes the, the, the channel inside me quite significantly where Kaita could push in. If I don't, then Trent Alexander-Arnold can receive the ball in a lot of space and I have to rely on my pace to be able to push forwards and close him down. And unfortunately, that, that was the problem. You also saw that Liverpool were quite aggressively attacking what was their right wide channel. So Firmino would drop off and push across to that side. Keita would push forwards, and we often see Liverpool's right-hand central midfielder pushing into that space and trying to occupy it. So Henderson does it as well. Oxlade-Chamberlain does it as well. Uh, and when Tierney was dragged wide left to defend against Salah, that meant there was a lot of space in there, so it, it it was something that you know we we saw against uh, Chelsea, uh, we saw against Fulham that that these things can work really well. Um, uh, we saw it against Liverpool as well, actually, in in the Community Shield. In this game, it didn't work, but that was as much because of the way that that Liverpool were were occupying that space and exploiting it, as it was anything inherently wrong with that system. I'm glad you said that about the about the structure, Alex, because I I also thought that watching it, which makes me think I'm watching football good. So thank you for that, uh, because I remember thinking that both the first two goals, the first one for Mane when Salah just runs around um, uh, Tierney, where I mean you know poor lad, nothing he can really do about that. That's just a, a player who's exceptionally strong and fast and quicker than he is. So I think that's a kind of you know a qualitative overload to quote Alex Stewart. Uh, and for the second goal, the Robertson one, 
Uh, I think it was clearly because William didn't track back cl- uh, quickly enough, uh, and I felt bad for him because after the, after that, every time Robertson got anywhere near the box, William was there <laughs> on his on his on his ankles. So he obviously recognised um, or, or you know felt some felt some guilt in part for the second goal. If those individual mistakes weren't made, then I guess uh, system you know system wise, pretty it works pretty well, right? But then I guess that's how football works. Yeah. Mistakes I mean- lead to goals. Yeah, generally speaking, um, I, I suppose the other issue, like you said, with Williams tracking and and Aubameyang's pressing of Gomez, that Arsenal, and, and this is the case for any team, that you can't simply be passive. Um, yeah. And and Arteta particularly, you know, he's expressed a desire to to try and play a certain way, and and if not, always kind of play really high quality possession football at, at least impose their own game plan on the opposition and Arsenal's game plan clearly was to try and leave men up so that if the press was broken or Liverpool were dispossessed then they could get either Willian drifting into the the central space to to pull the strings or Aubameyang's pace up against Gomez as a way of exploiting stuff on the counter and you can't you know the the this this is say sort of the Newcastle conundrum where you try and pull your wide attacking players back so that they can double up on the opposition attacking players in wide spaces, but then if that happens, you've got no one to play the ball forwards to. So there is a balance between how much defensive work you expect your wide attacking forwards to do and how much they are then in a position to be able to attack or not. And in this instance, Arsenal didn't quite get that balance right, but particularly for the Robertson goal, that was because of the ability that Liverpool had to to gain a, a numerical overload in that right half space so that Trent Alexander-Arnold then had the opportunity to look up and pick a cross, which, to be fair, yes, Robertson's run was from very deep and wasn't picked up, but if Trent Alexander-Arnold doesn't have the time to pick that cross, then you know nothing results from it anyway. And, that, and that's because Liverpool were able to generate these overloads to, to find space in the gaps between Maitland-Niles and Tierney particularly, but also between Tierney and Louise. So what you're saying is that football is all interconnected? That is what I'm saying, yes. Good. Yes. That's good to know. <laughs> <laughs> I like it. Okay, one more question for you, Alex. Louise, uh, because I noticed that David Louise, towards the end of the first half, I don't know if I missed a few earlier on, but towards the end of the first half, he had more space. And he started to play long passes. And one or two of them nearly worked. I mean, I think there were a couple of offside calls. Uh, but there was clearly an option to play over the top of Liverpool's very high defensive line. Uh, you got Lacazette and Aubameyang who were very quick. I think Maitland-Niles ran in behind for one, was called offside and just had a poor touch. Um, but that was an option. However, they also seemed to totally, totally dedicated to playing out from the back, even when it seemed, you know, edge of the seat stuff. I was just curious if on your watching of the game you noticed why one thing happens at, at one point and the other happens at another point. Are there particular triggers that I am missing? No, I, I think you're right in that it is to do with space. I mean, what what Luis tends to do is he plays a couple of long passes early in each half uh, and then he plays long passes late in each half. Uh, and that appears to be fairly consistent. Um Largely, I think, because those might be periods either when uh, the opposition defensive structure hasn't settled properly or because the press has slackened off, you know, as as you get towards the end of a half, people get tired and so on. 
uh, and it, it did seem very much like you know when when Luis is looking to to pass the ball forwards, he'll control it. He kind of rolls it forward slightly, particularly if he's looking to hit it with his right foot, which is his preferred foot for the longer passes. And he does always look up, uh, and it's quite a kind of clear, deliberate, you know, control, pause, look up, hit it. And obviously, if the the midfielder well marked, and and when a team is pressing less aggressively forwards, they will tend to congest the midfield as well. So both things kind of work in concert. That's the opportunity at which Luis can look up and see. Okay, well maybe I can expose you know, a defender against Aubameyang's pace or Lacazette has dropped off sufficiently to be between the lines. Um, I, I don't think there's necessarily a, a trigger that says, uh, you know, now is the time to do it other than having the space to look up and pick it. And I suspect that if he had more time and space earlier on in the game, he probably still would have tried it every now and again. Um it seemed to be a relatively sensible way of doing stuff, particularly until Sabias came on, um, because as you said at the beginning, you know that, that Sabias was able to play through uh, in, in the way that that Xhaka wasn't. But I don't, I don't think there's necessarily any particular kind of trigger other than these these situational things that occur when teams sit back, congest the midfield a little bit more, and that that affords him the opportunity. Okay. Uh, well, before we move on. Quick shout for Naby Keita, who I thought was uh, really good in this game. Seb, I don't know if you want to add a couple of words there, but I thought he was buzzing, cutting, snapping. Uh, he was just uh, everywhere. Fine. And, of course, Diego Jota scored a goal. So there's that too. Well done. Congratulations, everyone. Uh, when we come back, assuming that there's a, a dynamically inserted advert here, we'll be talking about Manchester City's defence. Seb, wouldn't it be great if all of the clothes shops that you shopped at only had your size, the styles you like, and everything at the price you want? It'd be good for you. It'd be bad for me. Oh, it'd be great, Jay. That'd be fantastic. Yeah. Well, Stitch Fix is a company focused on doing just that. It's an online personal styling company that makes getting the clothes you love simple. It's a completely different way to shop, and it's all about you. To get started, go to stitchfix.co.uk slash athletic to set up your profile and they'll deliver great looks personalised just for you. I could really use something like this. My looks are a little non-great. You are, you're, you're quite an unusually shaped person as well. So I feel like something that's tailored to you is, uh, would be a real <laughs> Unusual shape, wow. Goodness gray, I just thought that we were here to talk about the power of Stitch Fix, but apparently apparently I've arrived at some kind of group. Anyway, great looks personalised just for you. Do you know how much you'll pay uh, for a styling fee for each fix, Seb? No, tell me, Joe. You'll pay a £10 styling fee for each fix, which is credited towards anything you keep. So schedule it at any time with no subscription. Delivery and returns are completely free and easy, so you can always send back items that aren't right for you. So in my case, most clothes that are <laughs> normal sized. Is that, is that what you're saying? I was just saying that you, you have unusual properties. You are a very, very tall man, uh -huh. and unusually yeah. so. Guess what? Can't buy shoes in shops. So maybe Stitch Fix can help me with uh, with some shoes. And I bet they could. I'm going to find out by getting started with Stitch Fix today by going to stitchfix.co.uk forward slash athletic right now. That's what I'll be doing 
right now. That's stitchfix.co.uk forward slash athletic for clothes that are in the size, style and price that Seb wants. Hello and welcome to the latest podcast from The Athletic, the next big thing. Yeah, there's nothing better than I don't think as a fan to see in a lad coming on for his debut and I love the way they can't even fill the shirt properly. It's an absolutely stunning goal! This season we'll be drawing on the knowledge of our incredible football writers to give you the ultimate briefing on the stars of tomorrow. You know, people always question, you know, what, what is the plan for these young players? Our experts know these players better than anyone else. That's the thing with him. I mean, when he, he made his debut with the first team, I, I sort of said to him before the game, I have no worry about you. You know, I just, I know uh, how confident you are in your own ability, but he hasn't got that overconfidence. It all starts on September the 28th with a full profile of Liverpool's Billy Cometio. It's quite an, an incredible story, really, because, I mean, I, I was over in Boston for the, for the US tour last summer. You know, he wasn't really being spoken about as a potential first-team player, certainly not for this season. That's the next big thing, the latest podcast from The Athletic. We're back. Right, Manchester City's defence. Let's try to isolate the source of this problem, says Seb in my notes. There are a lot of individual mistakes happening, but the pressure is also non-existent and there's no pressure being exerted anywhere. That's oppressing. Sorry, I'm reading your notes wrong. What you're saying, Seb, is that if you look at the Madison goal, see penalties two and three, it's very easy to get in behind Man City's defence now. So what you want to know, presumably either from yourself or from Alex, (laughs) is this a physical or structural problem (laughs) or both? Seb, do you want to just add anything to my version of you? Do I really write? Do I sound like that when I write? Let's isolate the source of this problem. Is that what I'm That's what you say. Yeah. God, that yeah, sounds very you, late night. You, you no, this do. was this, this sounds like it was it was written for Alex's benefit. So you also said let's over. let's try to isolate the source of. Okay, this so problem. that sounds better. Let's. That's, yeah. there's, there's, there's also quite often, can we do such and such a thing? That's just more me, me being passive aggressive, Alex. That's not that's not a style <laughs> point. That's true. I, I'm aware of that. Yes. <laughs> Someone answer the question. Alex, answer the question, please. Yes, uh, it's. It's both. It's a structural thing and it's a personnel thing, I think. Um, one of the oddities that uh, the the recruitment of Ake and also this mooted, I, I, th- I believe it's agreed now, a £68 million deal for Ruben Diaz, is that City appear to be fixated with defenders who can pass the ball out from the back, which is all well and good, um, but they do still, and I'm sounding very old-fashioned here, they do still need to be able to defend. And Ake particularly has shown a weakness in the air. Ruben Diaz is, I think, significantly overrated as a defender, particularly as a one-on-one defender, um, partly because people privilege this passing ability uh, in defenders, which is great to have, uh, and that's why Virgil van Dijk is is the best defender in the world but that's also because he you know his defensive fundamentals are very strong as well so city's defenders are not great one-on-one but they are also being exposed by by the system at the moment and also by individual errors so you know that that um when uh when castanier got through to to cross the ball for vardy for that very cute finish that was because mendy didn't track his run uh ake was exposed trying to mark two different channels 
the penalties obviously were conceded partly because Jamie Vardy is superb at winning penalties, like well above average, but also because the one-on-one defense wasn't sufficiently good. But then I th- I'm trying to remember if it was, um, I think it was the first or second Leicester goal. Um, Fernandinho went flying forwards to, to try and close somebody down, completely failed to make the, the challenge or the pressure. And that exposed the back four to, to Leicester's runners, who are very, very good at carrying the ball into space. So, you know, City appear at the moment to have to have both the issues. They don't they don't have defensively strong enough centre backs to compensate for a lack of a really good and sustained press in front of them. Um, and that lack of sustained press is showing whether that's partly because, you know, Rodri is, is a less competent defensive central midfielder, Fernandinho is showing his age, all of these different things. But I, my concern for City is that, you know, Ruben Diaz is is very good and will every so often, you know, produce these sumptuous passes. But I think he will be exposed as a one-on-one defender in exactly the same way that, um, you know, Garcia and Ake currently are being. So... I don't see that it's going to get any better in the short term. Aki is one that really baffles me, actually, because I I watched a lot of Bournemouth. Um, They're pretty close to me um, geographically. And Aki is one of those players that everyone kind of just accepted. Oh, yeah, he's really, really good. Really, really good. He's, he's excellent. And yet no one ever seems to be able to say what part of his game is outstanding. Um, I think he's a perfectly serviceable Premier League uh, centre-half. I think he's he belongs in the top six. What qualifies him to be the answer to this sort of long-standing centre-back issue at Manchester City? I have no idea. Um, and also, I worry not, about though, is it? If they're buying another centre-back, then he's but clearly then... not considered by the club as the, the long-term answer either. Well, Diaz is a right-sided centre-back, so I think they're trying to go for that balance there. And, and once Laporte is back, you know, um, who who knows who will make way in that regard? But but no, I think. It it is this this um I don't want to say obsession, but when teams want to play out from the back uh, and want to be able to transition the ball ably from the the defence to a midfield line without necessarily having to have a player that drops in and and is the receiver for short passes, um then the the passing value of a centre back becomes more important than what they do defensively, and if you look at the really really good passing centre-backs, people like Virgil van Dijk or, or David Alaba, um, they are really good either at one-on-one defending or they're incredibly quick and they're able to compensate for a slight lack of ability as a one-on-one defender by getting back into place. And Ake doesn't have that. So yes, he is good at passing the ball, but I think he's vulnerable aerially and I, and I don't think he's... I don't want to say strong enough, like physically strong enough, um, but you know he's he's not. There's not a solidity there that you have. But this this is why I think at the moment, particularly, you know, although a lot of money is always spent on forwards, that the the crucial positions are centre back and and central defensive midfielder, and there just aren't a lot of really really good players in those positions who can do everything. You know they really are at a premium. It just interests me because I think if. Um, at one point, Aki was presented as the kind of the, the solution to Bournemouth's defensive issues, famously under Eddie Howe, their Achilles heel, um, before they developed three or four other Achilles heels, um, was, was their defensive line, um, which seemed to be in a kind of perpetual zigzag shape. Um, and it became very easy for uh, 
you know, even 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 at um, even away from home when they were typically a bit a little bit deeper for uh, you know for opposition players to get behind them. Um, Bournemouth's defence was one of the easiest to turn around in the Premier League, and I accept entirely that um, there were players who in that group who had probably been over-promoted from the Football League, who had adapted to Premier League, Premier League life and become competent, um, but were vulnerable to the best players in the in the Premier League. But Aki was still part of that group, and Aki struggled. And Aki, um, Aki was never either a kind of um, sort of the the social totem of that group, whereby he was kind of he was the organisational fulcrum. Nor was he technically outstanding in a way which which made you think he just doesn't belong at this level of the game. Like Van Dijk was an example of that. Like when he was obviously when he was at Celtic, but when he was at Southampton, it became. You know, after kind of a ropey few months at the beginning, when he had a—I always think of um, that terrible moment he had against Harry Kane. Um, after after a few months of adaption, it became very clear that his future was right at the top of the game. I think to everyone, it, it, it sort of who watched him, Aki, not the same player. Like perfectly good. You know, I, I would say he's just more of a, a third centre back, someone that sits in reserve or can be part of a back three um, with a couple of others. Um, a couple of others, crucially, who probably have a, a sort of more traditional tranche of defensive attributes. Um, yeah, I just don't get it. I'm, I'm very happy to be proved wrong, but it's it's one of those sort of it's one of those examples of received wisdom where, where people could crowd wisdom even where it just becomes an accepted truth. Oh, it's a great player. I'd love having him at our club, and you think, yeah, forty million pounds in this market's a lot of money, a lot of but money I, to be spending I, on him. I also think there's a, there's a wider point there to be made about. Um... I mean, say with City and centre backs, is that, or defenders generally, is that the the amount of money that Guardiola has spent on defenders has now become narrative. I mean, it became narrative a little while ago when he dumped all that money on fullbacks. Um, and so what that means is that when when City have defensive issues, the next player that they signed isn't just a player to come into the squad it's the player who will solve those defensive issues exactly and so they have a a, a greater degree of pressure um and uh what's the word not observation that the people are watching how it goes uh, and i think this will happen with diaz you know I, i i i don't think that move is going to be a success i'll put that down now um i think that that Therefore, the exposure that those players have because of this added thing, you know, this it'll be like when Manchester United finally sign a proper defensive midfielder, if that ever happens. Um, it, it's the same thing. Certain positions become totemic. And, and to go back to what you were talking about right at the beginning, the defensiveness of fans um, to to rally around a particular player who has been a high profile acquisition to come in and solve problem x means that you you get this incredibly disjointed uh, appreciation of a player's qualities you know they're either absolutely brilliant you guys don't rate them properly you've not watched enough of them they're going to be amazing or oh look you know he spunked another 70 million pounds on such and such a guy he's crap it's never going to work which is kind of what i'm saying but for different reasons um and and it just it magnifies all of these problems in a way that kind of is slightly unfair, I think, to the player. I mean, they, you know, they can still be very 
serviceable or even good Premier League quality players. But but in certain clubs, in certain positions, that takes on a, another aspect that then just stretches the issue out. And and I, I don't think that's helpful to anybody. You know who um you know who, who seems like the ultimate example of that. I know he wasn't a Guardiola signing, but Mangala. Because if you looked at Mangala at Porto, you think he's aggressive and he's instinctive and he's compulsive, impulsive in a way that sometimes makes a centre half erratic. But you could see a an excellent player in, in in him at that point with the right set of guidance. And it felt like when he came to City, and at the time I think they spent something in the region of about thirty five million pounds on him. Um, and you know, without the page in front of me, I can't tell you how long ago that was, but probably about sort of eight or nine years ago, I'd say, off the top of my head. And Mangala over, you know, he has to take responsibility for his City career not being what he wanted it to be, ultimately. But I think the thing that Alex describes, this sort of external pressure um, and the lens through which City, city centre-half purchases have become viewed became this sort of, became a, the ultimate challenge for him because all these little, um, these sort of impulses in his game, the risks that he took, the... Um, the gambles he took on being able to push out of his line and make interceptions or drop deep, whatever whatever decision he made. Um, over time, it became this sort of self-fulfilling comedic cycle whereby he just became a punchline. Um, and you worry about any player who goes into that situation who has imperfections. And I'm not drawing comparisons between Mangala, Otamendi, John Stones, and now Nathan Aki, but you can see in all of them various flaws. And I think there's a tendency now because of the profile City have, because Guardiola, you know, is sort of the um, the most visible ideologue of his generation, and because his teams will always be scrutinised in this way. Um, it's like it's like driving a wedge in, in, into a small crack, um, and over time, you can really easily ruin reputations like that. And I, I just I fear a little bit for, um, for for Aki over that. In the same way that John Stones' career is unrecognisable from from where it was two or three years ago. It was thirty-one point eight, by the way. Was it really? Okay. It Still, there's a huge amount of money. What, what year was that, Joe? If you, if you have it in front of you, it was twenty fourteen. Okay, so it's now six years ago, and that's. Uh, I remember thinking that sort of. The, I remember thinking of that transfer, that the Mangala transfer, as being a kind of emblem of City's resources in the way that you know few, there were very few other sides who'd be able to spend that much money on a on a centre half. I know it seems quite quaint to say that, but that's how I felt, and. Um, he was a victim of that, as others have been, um, you know, after him. 